Who is the hero of the original Star Wars trilogy? Yes, you heard me correct. That's how we're beginning our sermon this morning. Who is the hero of episodes, what we now know as episodes four, five, and six? Oh, wow, we're getting answers. That's great. More often than not, even though it was only one of the three, more often than not, I think the answer would be Luke Skywalker. In episode four, he's the hero who destroys the Death Star. In episode five, he takes down a massive walker single-handedly. In episode six, he saves Han from Carbonite. He defeats Vader and turns him to help him defeat the Emperor. I think you could argue that Luke is the hero of this original trilogy. But as we saw in our answers, the beauty of Star Wars is that there really isn't just one hero. Luke would have never been able to destroy the Death Star if it wasn't for Han Solo showing up at the last minute to send Vader careening off into space. Luke's the hero that we often remember or think of, but even he would not have accomplished his mission apart from the work of others. We see this need of others in lots of stories and movies. You can think of Frodo and Sam in Lord of the Rings. Harry, Ron, and Hermione in Harry Potter. Batman has Alfred. Iron Man has Pepper Potts. The moral of the story is you need to partner together with others to accomplish your mission. You need to partner together with others to accomplish your mission. But this is true not just of the the great movie or story heroes of our time. But what we'll see as we conclude Colossians this morning is that even the Apostle Paul, yes, the, the greatest of the apostles, needed others. He'll teach us by command and example the benefit of partnering together with others to accomplish our mission, to proclaim Jesus and advance the gospel. So if you have a Bible, please open with me to Colossians chapter 4. We'll be considering the end of Colossians, verses 2 through 18. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18 are relationships, partners in Christ. If you don't have a Bible, you can find Colossians 4 on page 985 of the, the pew Bible there in the pew in front of you. You can feel free to take that Bible home with you if you do not have a Bible. That is our gift to you. Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2, and we'll read to the end of this letter. Hear the word of the Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. 
And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The word of our Lord. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, this morning that we pray that you would give us the heart of one who has understanding. Lord, that we would seek the knowledge of your word. Father, that we would not be like the fool who feeds on folly, but that, Father, we would be filled with the fullness of Christ. That you would teach us of Jesus and his friendship and how you call us to partner with others to declare this glorious mystery. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've worked through Colossians... We've seen an overarching theme that Jesus is the exalted Lord of heaven and earth. He is the one who is sufficiently supreme in all of life. Christ is above all. It was this message that Jesus is the the full revelation of the mystery of God that Epaphras proclaimed to the Colossians. This was not a church that Paul had planted. It was a, a church that was planted by Epaphras. He proclaimed that what was hidden was now revealed in Jesus. And so that's what the Colossians believed. But it seemed that in the the meantime, the Colossians had come, that there were threats to believing that. And so Epaphras had come to Paul, and Paul was writing this letter to proclaim this mystery, the mystery of Christ that they had believed. He reminds them, he recounts for them how the person and work of Jesus is all that they need for life and godliness. He tells them that if you have received Jesus as Lord, walk in Him as Lord. And then he applies that to their lives. He tells them that if if you have believed the mystery of Christ, that, that you will put to death sin and put on righteousness, that you will live with a good order in your home. And then we come here to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. And Paul will give his final instructions of what it looks like to live a life with Jesus as Lord. And he tells them, just as Epaphras proclaimed the mystery of Christ to you, and as I have reminded you of the mystery of Christ, so too they are to proclaim this glorious mystery. But in order to do that, we see in Paul's example and in his command, we need to partner together. That's our big idea this morning. Partner together in faithful love to declare the mystery of Christ. Partner together in faithful love to declare the mystery of Christ. For Paul, a life where Christ is above all will be a life that is aimed at declaring the mystery of Christ to the nations. 
This is Paul's aim. He calls the Colossians to join him in that, to pray for him, and then to walk in such a way that they are willing and able to proclaim at a given moment. And then he sends all of these greetings. It is an unusually long greeting section for Paul. And I think it's a reminder again and again of how Paul's partners in declaring the mystery of Christ have partnered with him, but also have partnered with the Colossians, that they are supported the Colossians even from a distance. He seems to be emphasizing that the partnership that is to mark the Christian life. As those who live under the Lordship of Jesus, we are to partner together in faithful love to declare the mystery of Christ. But how? How are we to partner together to do this? How can we partner together to advance the gospel of Jesus? Well, I think from our passage, we can make seven observations, seven ways that we can partner together. And so that's what we'll do. We'll walk through the rest of our passage, considering seven ways to partner together, beginning with persist in prayer, persist in prayer. This will be the the longest of our observations. Persist in prayer. Look again at the first and then the last command of the passage. So the first command, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Then look down to verse 18. And the last command, remember my chains. Remember my chains. This idea of of remembering his chains, I think, is a, a command to remember Paul in prayer. The chains are the impetus to pray. Paul is suffering under the weight of imprisonment for proclaiming the gospel. And so he's calling on the Colossian church to remember him. To remember him in praying for him. So we are to be a people, brothers and sisters, who persist in prayer. We're to persist in prayer for ourselves and for others. That's the idea of verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer. I think we can apply this to our, our personal prayer lives. Well, how are we to continue in prayer? How are we to devote ourselves in faithfulness to prayer? Well, Paul says we are to be watchful in prayer. We are to pray as a way to to stay alert, to be watchful for the return of Christ. The Bible says we don't know when Jesus will return. And so we are to stay awake by praying. See, what prayer does is it keeps us from growing distracted from the things of this world. And it helps us to set our minds on Christ. We're very easily tempted to fall asleep like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can fall asleep as we await Jesus' return. So what did Jesus instruct his disciples in the Garden? He said, stay awake and pray for the time is coming. And as he instructed them, he instructs us. We ought to pray in a watchfulness, waiting for the return of Jesus. But we're also, this kind of watchful prayer is, is motivated by thanksgiving. So we see there in the end, with thanksgiving there at the end of verse 2, Paul has, has made mention of this theme of thanksgiving again and again in Colossians. He seems to be making the argument that the life of a Christian is the life that is fueled by thanksgiving. They're to be thankful as they teach one another, as they relate to one another. Thanksgiving is, a, is to be a mark of our of not only our lives, but of our prayer. You can think of it this way, like gas to a car, prayer is fuel, or thanksgiving is fuel for our prayer life. Like gas to a car, prayer is fu- or thanksgiving is fuel for our prayer life. Remembering what God has done, 
Remembering who we were as we were evil and set against God. How He has reconciled us through Jesus. That we might have hope. Remembering those truths can encourage us to pray. So just think about your own prayer life this week. Have you found it hard to pray? Recount the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done. I think of, of how many of the Psalms in which, in which they are filled with prayer start and are, are fueled as a way of looking back to the work of God in their lives. Fuel your prayer life with thanksgiving. But the apostle wants them not just to pray steadfastly, but he wants them at the same time, in verse 3, to pray for them. So look down at verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. Paul wants them not just to persist in prayer in general, but to pray for him and for his companions, that God would open a door for the word, for them to declare the mystery of Christ. Seems that Paul is longing for more and more opportunities, availability to proclaim Jesus. That's the idea of open doors. It's the idea of, of, of availability, of openness. The mystery of Christ here is not that, that Jesus is a mystery that has to be solved, that we have to be like Nancy Drew and figure out the kind of, of what, who Jesus is and what he's done. The mystery of Christ is that Jesus is the mystery of God now revealed. That rather than having to search for who God is and what he has done, that it is made known to us in Jesus. This is what we saw in Colossians chapter 2. You can look back there later today. The mystery of God is Christ. That in Jesus, Paul will say, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden and found. So the mystery of Christ is the good news. That Jesus has come. That he has died. That he has risen again, that we may be welcomed into his kingdom. And so Paul is, is, is teaching the Colossians that what has happened to them, he wants more people to receive. It's this message that he's suffering for, and this this message that he wants to be clear about. I think even there in his prayer request, we learn that, that this mystery of Christ is not something that is, is to be fuzzy or blurry, but something we are to be abundantly clear on. This is why as a church we're teaching our telling the story Sunday school class right now. It's because we want to be a church that is clear about the gospel. A church where we naturally speak about the gospel. But this is something that happens supernaturally. It's something we can practice, but it's also something that God must do, which is why Paul asks for prayer. Friends, if even the Apostle Paul needed God's help to be clear about the gospel... We, we need that same help. Our evangelism, our declaring of the mystery of Christ should start with prayer. So in other words, partnering together, partnering together to declare Christ starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. Partnering together starts with prayer. Here, the Apostle Paul is, is asking for prayer to share the gospel. He doesn't have a specific person he's praying for. He's just praying for opportunities. So friends, when's the last time that you prayed for open doors to proclaim the gospel? When's the last time you asked someone to join you in praying for open doors for the gospel? It may be that we do not have because we do not ask. So let me encourage you this week to be like Paul and ask someone to join you in praying for an open door for the gospel. 
As your leaders, we try to provide opportunities to talk about doors that may be open. So you can use small groups. In our, in our small groups, we seek to provide a, a time at the end where we pray for one another. What a wonderful opportunity to talk about and ask, hey, can you pray for me that God would open doors to share the gospel? At our members meeting every other month, the, the pastors try to ask someone we know who has an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ or who has had an opportunity. And we use this meeting to, to pray for open doors to the gospel. But whether it's in those formal ways or more in informal ways, make it a regular practice to ask others if, they have, if there are doors or opportunities that they have or to ask you in joining them to pray for those opportunities. And as we learn of them, Paul tells us to persist in praying for them. Well, what does it look like to persist in prayer? Well, let me just give you a few tips. One, write it down. If someone gives you an opportunity, write it down. Put a note in your phone to pray. And then having written it down, follow up and ask them about it. Hey, how's it going? Text them to let you know that you're praying for them, that you, you have thought about them and are, and are praying that God would open that door. The aim is not just to pray once, but Paul says to be steadfast in it, to pray again and again and again. And this kind of prayer life takes hard work. So look at, uh, at verse 12. I love how Paul describes Epaphras. In verse 12, in this section of greetings, Paul talks about Epaphras, who, who these Colossians would have known. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And this is how he describes him. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Friends, Paul's not just commanding you to persist in prayer. He's giving you an example of what it looks like. It looks like struggling on behalf of other saints to pray for them. Does this describe your prayer life? Do you persist in a way that it could be said that you struggle for others? This week I was reading about Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China in the 19th century. He founded the the China Inland Mission. But his son wrote of him after his life, his son wrote that regularly Hudson from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. in the quietest moments of his day would, would take time to pray. He knew that if he didn't carve out time, if he wasn't intentional to find time to wait on God in prayer, it would not happen. And so he quieted, find the quietest moment to pray. Now, I'm not suggesting that you wake up at 2 a.m. and start praying. I'm not going to do that. What I am saying is that this is a good example of what it looks like to struggle on behalf of others in prayer. It is to carve out intentional time to pray. It looks like ridding ourselves of distractions, putting away our phone, finding a quiet place, and to pray, whether it's for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or or two hours like Hudson Taylor. We need to carve out that time to struggle on behalf of others in our prayer life. Paul connects Epaphras' struggle in his prayer life to his then working hard for them. A persistent prayer life for others leads to a loving labor for others. So if it's hard for you to love others, pray for them. Pray for them by name, labor and struggle in love for them in prayer. And what you'll find, hopefully, Lord willing, is that as you pray for them, you will be able to labor on behalf of them. This idea that, that the, 
that we partner together first by persisting in prayer, hopefully is a good encouragement for you who feel like your best days of energy are behind you. Declaring the mystery of Christ does not mean that you have to be at every event or that you have to travel the world to declare the mystery of Christ. Are you able to open your Bible and your member's guide and pray for other members? It's hard work, but it's hard work that all of us can do and are called to do. We are called here to partner together by persisting in prayer. Friends, if you want to partner with others to, to see the gospel proclaimed, start with praying with and for others. And may God hear and answer our prayers. Well, partnering together in faithful love to declare the mystery of Christ is seen as we persist in prayer. But it's, it's so many more things. So we're going to move on. We see Paul tells us that to persist or to partner together looks like walking in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. One way that we can partner together to proclaim the gospel is to walk together in wisdom. See, as we pray for open doors, we want to walk in such a way that we are ready to take advantage of those open doors. That's what Paul's calling the Colossians 2. He sees this as he commands them in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's calling us to live a Christ-saturated, God-glorifying life that is ready at any time to speak graciously and winsomely about the gospel. He's calling us to live a life that is oriented towards sinners. Well, what does it look like to live this kind of wise life? Well, it looks like first making the best use of our time. It's the idea that we're buying back our time, redeeming our time. One author described it as being godly exploiters of time. The idea is we want to be careful about just sleepwalking through life. How many of us lost track of time this week on social media to find ourselves a few hour, or an hour or two later or playing video games or whatever it is that you got lost in? This is what Paul's warning us about. He, he wants us to be intentional about how we spend every moment of every day. So think about it. What time can you buy back this week? How can you exploit in a godly way your time, particularly your time before outsiders? Maybe it's your lunchtime at work, your breaks. Maybe it's thinking intentionally about how you go to sporting events with your kids. Take some time to reflect on this week and and how you spend your time. Where are you not making the best use of it? And aim to make it, to redeem it. But walking wisely doesn't just mean we make good use of our time. It's seen in how we talk about the gospel. See, as we walk in wisdom, the aim... The aim is that we will be ready to respond when questions are asked of us. That's what Paul says in verse 6. As we think about then how we talk about the gospel, we want to talk graciously. Let your speech always be gracious, Paul says. The manner and tone of our conversation should be one that reflects the content of our message. That is, it should be gracious. We're delivering what we have heard and understood to be the grace of God in truth. Is that reflected in how we talk about the good news? Friends, the gospel is provoking all on its own. It is the good news of a narrow way. 
It is provoking. It is hard for people to receive. So don't make it harder to receive because of how you talk about it. Peter's instructive here in, in chapter 3 of his first letter, verse 15, he writes, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's the, the first part, walking in wisdom, making the best use of your time. And then he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Being gracious in our speech is, is speaking in a way that we're gentle and respectful as God has dealt with us. That we're not just hitting people over the head with this good news and saying, believe it, believe it, believe it. No, Paul says we want to be gracious and we want to be winsome. That is, we want our speech seasoned with salt. Just like salt in mashed potatoes accentuates the flavor, taking them up a notch and making them a little bit more provoking, our speech ought to be the, the same way. We're, we're talking about a, a marvelous truth. We're, we're talking about God taking on flesh, delivering sinners freely as a gift of God's grace. Friends, we shouldn't talk like it's bland potatoes. This is glorious good news, and so we need to speak of it in such a way that we're winsome about it. This could mean that walking in wisdom means learning from others how they talk about the gospel and gaining how they have and learning from, from their own speech how you can speak more graciously and winsomely about the gospel. Part of how we partner together is by helping each other walk in wisdom together. That our partnership is seen as we walk together in this wisdom, growing and helping one another speak in such a way. That we're ready at any, at any moment knowing how to answer each person. I want to make a side note here that this doesn't mean that you have to have the answer to every person's questions. That when you are, or someone asks you a question that you don't know about, it's okay. In fact, it's gracious and winsome to say, I, I don't know, that's a great question. Let me, let me see if I can come to, get an answer and come back to you. So, so knowing how you ought to answer each person doesn't mean you always have to have the answer right away but that you're, you're speaking in such a way that's gracious and winsome. Well, we partner together by, by praying, persisting in prayer. We, walk, we partner together by walking in wisdom. Third, we want to partner together by investing in encouragement. Investing in encouragement. As we move into this section, I, I just want to highlight Paul's tone. So we're pulling this theme particularly from verses 7 to 9, but I think it's helpful just to look at the overarching greeting section and just to note that Paul's tone is one of affection and encouragement for this church. He doesn't know this church. He's never met this church, and yet his heart is moved in love for them. And he wants them to know of all these other people who love them and are greeting them and care for them. Paul longs that their hearts may be encouraged. In fact, this is why he sent the letter. Look at verse 8. He says, I have sent him, that is Tychicus, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul has found Tychicus and Onesimus very useful to him. You can see how he just describes Tychicus in verse 7. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. Paul says in Philemon that when he sends Onesimus away from him, he's sending his very heart. 
So these brothers were, were not just like on the outskirts of Paul's team. No, they were deeply involved in encouragement to him. And he's willing to send them to the Colossians for their encouragement. He's in willing to invest in their encouragement, even at cost to himself. For Paul, he knows encouragement is vital to the Colossians declaring the mystery of Christ. If they're going to endure in knowing the truth and in proclaiming the truth, they're going to need encouragement. And so he invests in it. This encouragement comes both through the letter, right, reading the letter, hearing of Paul's encouragement there, but also through the, the recounting of all that God has been doing. Right? He's, they're going to tell you of everything that has taken place here. So he encourages them not only specifically to themselves, but just reminding them of God's work in the world. Friends, encouragement is an important but often neglected part of the Christian life. Encouragement is this idea of, of spurring on someone to, to continue to pursue Christian love and, and, Christ, and the Christian walk. It's to help them endure until we reach the end when Christ appears and we will appear with Him in glory. It's a reminder that that gospel ministry is hard. Right? Paul's in prison. We'll we'll read of Aristarchus, who's also a prisoner. Epaphras is laboring hard. It's a difficult life. But this is why encouragement is so helpful. Encouragement in our life becomes like Sam carrying Frodo to the top of Mount Doom. Do you know that scene in The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King? Hopefully you do. If you don't, go watch it later. Frodo and and Sam, the two main characters, have been on a year-long journey. One which has sucked the life out of Frodo. But they've made it to their location, Mount Doom, which is where he, he destroys the ring. But Frodo has become so burdened by the evil of the ring that he can't finish the task. He's forgotten all that is good in his life. He is, he's laying there on the rocks and he can't go any further. And at that moment, Sam looks down at Frodo and he says to him, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And he picks him up and he carries him to the top of Mount Doom to finish the task. Brothers and sisters, this is what encouragement does for our hearts. In the midst of burdens and weariness, the encouragement of a friend comes in and says, I can't always take all those burdens off of your back, but what I can do is I can carry you. I can encourage you, and that encouragement carries us on. It gives us the energy to press on when it feels too hard. So think about an encouragement you have received recently. What did it do for your soul? We can learn from Paul, how to give godly encouragement that helps us as we seek to to press on in this mission to proclaim the mystery of Christ. So let me give you three tips for godly encouragement. First, start small. Start small. Let me just highlight the most repeated word in, in verses 7 to 18 in this passage is this word of greet or greeting. So friends, a significant way that we can encourage others is simply by greeting them on a Sunday morning. Ensure that we know that we're thinking of them, that we're moving towards them. It's a a small investment that can yield a bigger reward. And note how who's greeting these Colossians? Well, it's it's brothers and sisters that they they don't know. 
Right? It's people that they've never met. This is a good reminder for us. On a Sunday morning when we gather together, we can't greet everyone. So who should we prioritize in greeting? Well, Ed Welch says it this way. That a reasonable application of scripture is to greet one person we don't know or don't know well every time we gather with others in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, greet those who you do not know. That is a godly way to encourage them. To know that you care for them. And by greeting, all we're doing is we're saying hi. We're introducing ourselves. We're we're asking how they're doing. And even just that short little conversation goes a far far way in, in investing in encouragement. But secondly, we should be specific. Be specific. As you seek to encourage others around you, you should be specific about what you find encouraging in their lives. This is what the Apostle Paul does in, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3-8. through 8, right? He begins by specifically encouraging them of what he's heard from Epaphras, of how the Word of God is bearing fruit in their life. So be specific about what encouraging things God is doing in the life of your friends and, and what encouraging things God is doing in your own life, right? This is what Tychicus and Onesimus are doing. They're letting the Colossians know about what God is doing. So be specific. And then third, give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. Ultimately, friends, we want to remind the person that we're seeking to encourage that God is still active It can be hard to see how God is working at times. So give thanks to God and remind the person that you're encouraging that that God is still active in their life and in this world. We want to differ between worldly compliments and biblical encouragement. One author says it this way, worldly compliments exalt self, biblical encouragement exalts God. When someone receives biblical encouragement, she walks away praising and thanking God, not praising and inflating self. This is what our aim ought to be. We're not just seeking to make people feel good about themselves. No, we're seeking to lead them to God, to give thanks to God. So a good way to encourage is if you've called a friend this week and and, and you had some struggles that were happening and you just, you laid those out for them and they heard them and they asked good follow-up questions and they prayed with you. A great way to encourage them would be to, to call them and say, thanks for, for listening to me yesterday. Thanks for engaging and asking following questions. That, that made me feel loved. It was a clear evidence that God is working in you. The more specific we can be in our encouragement, the better we are encouraging. Friends, we can't always carry each other's burdens, but we can carry each other as we make our way to the end. So giving and receiving godly encouragement is a way that we partner together in faithful love to declare the mystery of Christ. It's hard work, but as we encourage one another, we press on in it. But as we think about this, we we want to partner not just with those who are like us, but also with those who are working across the world. We want to welcome other workers. Welcome other workers. As Paul continues in his greetings, I'm gathering this idea from verses 10 to 11. Paul's encouragement is, is there to welcome Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Look down at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him. The idea of welcome is to support. When you were welcoming someone in this time, right, we didn't have social media or 
or other ways of giving, right? We couldn't send giving via Venmo to someone and, and, and that's how we supported them. No, the way that you supported someone was by welcoming them into your home, right? Giving them a bed, giving them a meal. It's still a great way to welcome other people and support them. And so he's, his call to welcome Mark is a call to support him. And this was significant for Paul. If you don't know, Mark was likely the, the same Mark that caused Paul and Barnabas to split up in Acts chapter 15. Yet here, Mark, Mark is known as, as a, a beloved brother for Paul. He treasures this relationship. It's a good reminder, brothers and sisters, of the kind of reconciliation that should mark our church. That as we partner together for the proclamation of the mystery of Christ, we need to be aware that sin will happen, right? Others will get hurt. Relational difficulties will come. So we need to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and ready to forgive. But Paul not only mentions Mark, he mentions Aristarchus, and he also mentions this Jesus who is called Justice. All three are fellow workers of Paul. They're those who are helping him proclaim the mystery of Christ. And so for the Colossians to welcome these workers, they were partnering together for the advance of that gospel. But note what, what, what is unique about these men in verse 11. That these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. It, that is, that they were uh, Jews. Which would have been culturally unlike the, the Colossians who were primarily Gentiles. In fact, we know from other portions of Scripture that the Jews and Gentiles hated one another. And so Paul's highlighting of, of this unique aspect of who these three men are is a way of, of, of encouraging us to support those who, who are across cultural boundaries. That we are to welcome those who are not like us. Both in our churches, right, that our churches should not just look like one group of people but also in, in, how we, in those whom we support. Church, I've been encouraged by how we have sought to welcome workers from across other cultures. We did this with workers like Gunnar, who were able to come to our, our members meeting in January, where we just gave him the floor for over 30 minutes, where we welcomed him by having conversations that lasted almost an hour after the meeting ended. In just a few hours, a Mandarin-speaking church will meet in our building, just another example of how we as a church can welcome other workers for the proclamation of the gospel to the nation. So this is something that, brothers and sisters, you are doing well. So let me encourage you to do so more and more. Think about ways that you can support missionaries and workers who are not like you. Think about ways that you can welcome other members of this church who do not look like you or enjoy the same things as you. It's hard work, but it's a way in which we partner to declare the mystery of Christ. That as we, are, as we come together in this new society, we are proclaiming to the world that, that, we, that we are in Christ. So we partner together in faithful love by persisting in prayer, by walking in wisdom, by investing in encouragement, by welcoming other workers. And we also do it through cooperating with sister congregations, cooperate with congregations. This is similar to welcoming other workers, but here I just want to highlight that Paul calls us to partner not just with individuals, but with other congregations. He expects the Colossians church to be interacting with and sharing with the church in Laodicea. So look at verse 15. 
He says, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read their letter. So Paul here has this idea of cooperation, right? He expects the attitude between these two congregations to be one of of cooperating with, with one another, not competing with one another. Each of these churches have the the same aim to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of them were in the same area. Laodicea and Colossae were neighboring uh, cities. And so it would have been easy for them to have this attitude of competition. To say, oh, just imagine how much bigger my church could be if that church didn't exist. That's not what Paul calls us to. No, he calls them to cooperate with one another. Brothers and sisters, the way we partner together to see the gospel advance is by seeing the gospel advance in other churches, by helping them, supporting them, by praying for them that God might bear the fruit of salvation. This is why in our prayer of intercession, you hear us pray for other churches in our area week after week. Are you personally praying for other churches to grow? A great habit would be if you drive by a church Whether you know if it's a good church or a bad church, just pray that God would make his gospel known, that he would open doors for them to declare the mystery of Christ. But we don't just pray for them, we pray with them. As a church, every fifth Sunday, we meet together with three other sister congregations to pray for the spread of the gospel. Friends, this is the kind of attitude that that is to mark our church. We're to pray for one another, we're to help one another. In, in, in the past, we've sent members to other churches for a long-term commitment or short-term commitment to help those churches proclaim the gospel, even if it came at a cost. The idea here is rather than be competing, we're to be cooperating in faithful love to declare the mystery of Christ. We're to cooperate with other congregations. But we're also to spur on new shepherds to spur on new shepherds. In verse 17, we have this this mention of Archippus. It kind of stands out to me as I was reading this week. He says, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So here Paul's been writing to the church as a whole, and now he's kind of calling out this, this one brother. Well, from Philemon, we gather that this brother would have been known in the church. He had some sort of role, but we're not told much about him. And what we're told of him is that the church is called to encourage him to fulfill the ministry that he has received. We don't know what kind of ministry this, this is. But the idea is, is as, the, as the, the church heard this and read this, the idea was that others would then start talking to an archivist. Say, hey, you should fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. It was to spur him on, right? Have you ever been called out by a teacher in the middle of class? Does that make you want to shrink back? Yeah, sometimes. But it also should spur us on. I don't want to be called out again, right? He's called me out once. I don't want to be called out again. And that's the idea. It was to spur them on, to provoke him to do what was, was given to him. And so, brothers and sisters, I just really want to use this to say that this should be the same attitude of our church, to spur on new shepherds, to encourage people to fulfill the ministry that we've been given, to be seeing people do ministry and to encourage them to continue to do it. I can speak personally to say, brothers and sisters, that you have done that for me, right? For the last 11 years, you have given me opportunities. You've given me encouragement. 
You have given me money by God's grace. You have spurred me on to fulfill the ministry that God gave me. So let's continue to be that kind of work. Let's be encouraging one another to fulfill their kind of ministry, whether it's formal or whether it's just general caring for one another or anything in between. We can partner together in faithful love to declare Christ by raising up and spurring on others to do more of that very same thing. But as we partner together in this way, brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of a danger that is lurking for all of us. We need to be aware of worldliness. Our final way to partner together is to beware of worldliness. Maybe conspicuously or inconspicuously. We skipped over verse 14. So let's go back and read that. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. It's a very easy verse to skip over. It's, it's short. It's tiny. It's just these two greetings of these two brothers, Luke and Demas. We see these two people mentioned again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. So listen to, to this, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11. Paul here is writing to Timothy and he says, Do your best to come to me soon for Demas. Here's this brother that Paul's mentioned in Colossians. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. So here we have a a sober warning, brothers and sisters. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we see two brothers, Luke and Demas. Both as fellow workers with Paul. But by the end of Paul's ministry, 2 Timothy being likely the last letter he wrote, Demas has gone from fellow worker to deserter. And what's the reason? He is in love with this present world. Do you feel the haunting sting of those words? This present world? As one pastor said, Demas backed the the wrong candidate. Friends, there are two worlds. There's the one in which we exist, this present world, and there's the one that is to come when Jesus returns. And both are vying for our attention. For our vote, so to speak. And at the the stakes of of this choice are eternity. There is a world that we should love, Paul says. But it's not this world. It's the world that is to come. It's the world where Jesus is king. Where the supreme and sufficient Savior rules and reigns. That's the world that we should be setting our mind to. So brothers and sisters, beware of the slow and subtle pull of your affections towards this world. It's easy for us to be like Frodo with the ring, slowly, surely affected by the power of this world to the point that at some point we're overtaken by it. To the point that we begin setting our affections on what this world loves, approving what this world proves, condemning what this world condemns. Brothers and sisters, we need to beware of worldliness. And this is why we need friends. We need people like Samwise Gamgee in our life to alert us to the danger who can encourage us when we need it. Because there is one enemy that will keep us from proclaiming the mystery of Christ to the nations. And that is this world that we become so consumed with it that we no longer set our minds on the things that are above. 
So partner together by being wary of worldliness together. By fighting the subtle pool of this world. In, in some senses, what I'm saying is you should be more like Luke and less like Demas. One who sticks with one another till the end. All the way through. One of the ways that we can warn one another and beware together is by partaking in the Lord's Supper together. See, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves of our union to one another. That we've become citizens of a new kingdom. That the world that we live in is no longer our primary citizenship. That this is not of our own doing, but through the work of Christ. And it helps us to set our minds on the things that are above and not on the things that are of this world. Well, there it is, brothers and sisters. Seven ways that we can partner together to declare the mystery of Christ. We can partner together by persisting in prayer, walking in wisdom, investing in encouragement, by welcoming other workers, by cooperating with sister congregations, by spurring on others' ministry, and by being wary of the world. This is what it looks like, both in command and by example, for our relationships to fall under the reign and rule of Christ. It is faithful love. I wonder if you long for relationships like this. Maybe even if you watch movies that we've made mention of, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and long for those kinds of faithful friendships. Friends, it's not just the stuff of those stories. It's what we're called to by God, and it is empowered in us by faith in Jesus. If you long for these kinds of relationships but have never experienced them, there is one you can turn to to find this kind of friendship, of partnership. It's by going to Jesus. He's the one who persists in prayer. He intercedes for you even now. He's the one who walked in in wisdom. He's the one who has did not let worldliness take him, but lived the perfect life, yet died the death that we deserved in our place, rising again that we might have new life in him, be brought into a new society where these kinds of relationships are, are seen again and again. Friends, if you've never believed in Jesus, look to him, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. That's where you'll find the kind of partnership and friendship that you long for. He's the only one who can satisfy our soul. It'd be wrong to end Colossians and say what you need is more earthly friends. That what you just need is to be filled with friends. No, Paul's whole argument of Colossians has been what you need is to be filled with the fullness of Jesus. And as you're filled with the fullness of Jesus, guess what? These kinds of friendships come. These kinds of partnerships to proclaim the mystery of Christ come. But friends, what we need is Christ. He is the one who fills all things. So as we seek to partner together in faithful love to proclaim the mystery of Christ, let us run to our sufficient Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, a glorious friend of sinners. Father, we pray that as we have heard this, this message this morning, Lord, to, to partner together, that you would help us to have the kinds of relationships that are marked by a deep, faithful love for one another, that persist in prayer, that walk in wisdom, that invest in encouragement, that welcome others and cooperate with others, 
Let's spur others on to love and good deeds. Father, give us the kind of relationships where we are setting our minds on Christ and not on the things of earth. Father, we pray that as we partner together, Lord, that you would bring about growth for your gospel. Lord, that that sinners would be saved, that people would come to know and delight in Jesus. Make us a, a small part of that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.